You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl, and we will continue on the political philosophy introduction with the third segment of the discussion of Yves Simon's book, A General Theory of Authority. As you recall, this book is a fundamental book. It's quite short, 150 or so pages, and it contains a discussion about why uh, politics is reasonable to have authority to make decisions in which everyone is bound by the decisions, and yet it is reasonable to do so because, in principle, they are following their own uh, understanding of will, even though the particular thing they do may not be uh, the one they would have chosen. But it's one that has to be chosen uh, among many goods, or else the community could not stay together. Let me continue now. So recall that political authority is not substitutional. That is, it doesn't take the place of somebody else, like a parent's authority is substitutional. That is to say, it substitutes for the child's reason until such time that the child can act reasonably. So in that sense, we want everyone to act reasonably, even if they're not capable of acting reasonably. And the same with um, prisoners or things or, uh, like that. They are put in the condition they are so that acting reasonably on their part, uh, will be possible and not a violation of somebody else's dignity. And remember we talked about the two arguments of reason why authority is reasonable. First was the uh, question of the unity of action. That is to say, if many people are to do the same thing and there are many different ways to do it, all of which are good, then someone has to be designated in some way to make the decision in which the others agree to follow. So that because it, just because it's not my decision, I think I would do it better, it doesn't mean that it's unreasonable for me to make a follow a decision which someone else made in order that we all might uh, live together. The second argument was called the material willing of the common good, and that's sometimes difficult to understand. But the material willing of the common good is opposed, and not opposed to, but it's in contrast to the uh, formal willing of the common good. So formally, everybody wishes the common good, the good of themselves, the good of others, and the good of the community put together. But the material willing of the common good means that there are going to be steps that the community has to take, and that these steps, therefore, can be otherwise because there are many uh, good ways to achieve these things. But this particular argument is the what he calls the material willing of the common good. That is to say, an authority uh, must be appointed, and that authority's function it is and is to decide what is the actual policy that will be followed so that everyone 
will remain together. And he has several ways of explaining that as we will go along. So a philosophical need is authority based on the supposition that everyone is intelligent and free. So they're not some kind of uh, ignorance or weakness there. So that authority does not arise out of any kind of a deficiency or defect. Now, Simon gives two examples. Uh, he gives an example of the homestead and the example of the function of authority to make his point. So with regard to the homestead, he means this. A homestead is a phrase, of course, comes from farming. It comes from the establishment of a home. Now, that particular operation, a homestead or a farm, uh, or any kind of work, subsidiary organization, needs to itself be what it is. So a family needs to be a family and not a, a ball club. A ball club needs to be a ball club and not a golf club. A golf club needs to be a golf club and not a business. A business needs to be a business and uh, not, say, a, um, a uh, educational institution. All of those particular institutions are good, and they all have to be kept in order. They all, in other words, have to have their own authority. So the homestead means that the common good, that is, those who rule the common good, uh, recognize the need for that homestead to itself be held together by an authority. So the recognition of the higher-up is not that it takes its place, but that it recognizes its own autonomy within the overall area of the common good. So the material willing of the common good means when sometime there is a conflict that comes up, someone must decide about the particular action that they will follow. So the homestead is that we want the subsidiary units to be the subsidiary units. Now what he means by function is the um, easiest way to understand it is to take the example of the of a cabinet. So you've got a, uh, a prime minister or a president who's in charge of the country, supposedly, for certain responsible actions. And he subdivides his authority into 10 or 15 different departments. Now, he is still responsible for the carrying out of the policy. And so let's suppose he wants to discuss the uh, policy that he's going to carry out. So he has a secretary of war, and he has a secretary of interior, he has a secretary of agriculture, all these various secretaries who are responsible for a function within the presidential authority. Now, when the issue comes up, the president doesn't want uh, the uh, members of the function, that is, say, the departments, to tell him what he wants to hear. He wants them to tell him what is good for the department and for the country in their eyes. That's their responsibility, and he wants them to do that. And he delegates that to them because he doesn't have time or intelligence sometimes to do these things. But still, he's responsible for the decision. So they are responsible for saying what is the objective situation. He is responsible for saying, I take this into consideration, but these other things I have to take into consideration also. So the material willing of the common good is what 
actually carries out the decision about what will be uh, actually done by this group, and they agree um, uh, among themselves because they recognize that a decision must be made. They agree to follow that decision, even though it may not be what would be their choice. So the homestead and the function are examples, are aspects that Simon uses to make this point that you need an authority whose overall function is to protect and to encourage the minor units to be what they are and not to absorb them into some more gigantic uh, unity in which the uniqueness of that particular function and therefore its efficiency would be uh, undermined. Both the homestead and the function are full-time occupations. They're not part-time occupations. There is a distinction between the material and the formal willing of the common good, a good that allows all other goods to be good and to carry out by uh, and, and carried out by those uh, for whom the good it is. So the common good of the household allows the uh, parents to carry out the good of the household and their responsibility, and somebody else doesn't come in and tell them what to do, because that would be a destruction of the very nature of the, of the family. So that we want to make it possible for all goods, so that's what a common good is, a, a good that enables many goods to be present, which wouldn't be there if there were not this division of different functions and homesteads. So the homestead means, uh, effectively, the, the household. It means the home, the family, uh, with all its possessions and responsibilities. The formal willing of the common good means that all members of a policy or a family wish that its purpose and well-being be taken care of. What is not included directly are the concrete or particular uh, means uh, to do this. The particular means are the material willing. Uh, what does this material willing mean then? It means the choice of this policy rather than that policy, even though that policy may have been a decent policy. But in the overall judgment of the uh, authority, uh, the best one is, is this one. Now remember, the need of authority in principle says nothing about the form that authority uh, may take. That is, it could be a monarchy, an aristocracy, and so forth. There's different forms it can take and still be the necessary institution uh, to carry out the common good. So this is an argument that uh, concludes, yes, authority as such is necessary. It's reasonable. I understand the argument. In principle, it can take many legitimate forms. Remember what uh, I've said earlier. The freer we are, the more we have need of authority because the more intelligent we, we are freer because we have more choices that uh, are available to us because we understand it more thoroughly. 
So that is, I am free if I have 20 colleges to choose from, I'm freer than if I only had one. But even the latter, if I only had one choice, I can choose not to go there. But the more the choices, the more difficult it is to choose clearly and wisely. And yet, it may be that all 20 are, are worthy of attendance, and you can't attend more than one. To cite a famous platonic principle, for the parts to be the parts, this is very important to, to remember this, for the parts of a thing to be the parts of a thing, the whole must be the whole. That is to say, as we mentioned before, say an example of a bicycle. For a bicycle to be a bicycle, the whole, the thing that rides, the thing you get on, you need the parts, the wheels, the uh, pedals, the uh, frame, to be what they are. Because if they're not what they are, the thing wouldn't work, it wouldn't uh, fit together. So uh, a part, by definition, is an aspect of the whole. And this and this is the same true of our bodies. Our, our, our body is an organic whole with different parts. We don't want our hands to cease to be our hands in order that we might walk. We want both parts, both hands to exist, both legs to exist as part of one uh, whole being without which that being isn't what it really ought to be. So the part by definition is an aspect of the whole. And this may mean that the part may be limited to what it is. It's not the family is not more than the family, or a club is not more than a club, and indeed a palace is not more than a palace. We do not want the hand to be the leg. We want them both to be what they are in order that the whole might be what it is. The material willing of the common good means A, that the authority is responsible for what in particular must be done for the good of the whole. And B, the authority wants the parts to be the parts. It is part of the good of the whole so that the, that the household or the uh, homestead uh, be what they are, be what it is. To be what they are, they need another authority and responsibility. That is to say, there needs to be authority in the family because it too has many alternatives. The collapsing of all parts into the whole is not progress. The same is true of function. We want the Secretary of Transportation to defend the needs of that aspect of the common good. The president is the one who has to decide the balance of the whole. That's what he means by prudence, prudential rule, which he has to make a judgment about many good alternatives. So recall, recall from chapter three of the ethics, the notion of decision and deliberation. You deliberate because you have many alternatives that might be possible, but you have to decide to, to do one of them. And then thirdly, the common good cannot be a common good unless 
it strives uh, to cause the parts to flourish. It wants the parts to flourish. The body wants the hand to be a hand. They become more themselves because of the common good and not against it. Aristotle, for example, says that if you cut off somebody's hand, that result in the hand that you cut off is no longer really a hand. A hand is only a hand when it is a functioning part of a body. The third chapter of Simone's book asked uh, whether authority is needed in the matter of theory or truth. Both of these things. So how are things, they asked. So the question, how are things? All I want to do is know what the thing is. Uh, I don't want to do anything with it. But my mind is curious. I want to know. Uh, so uh, the mind isn't just kind of something that sits up there. It wants to know what is not itself. A theory question is, is it? Or what is it? So that's the question of theorene in Greek, the notion of theory, the notion of knowing. It is not an action question. So a practical question is, what will I do, not what is it? This is a theoretical question. So keep these two in mind. Politics are on the action side. This is why the two essential arguments have to do with actions, making decisions and affecting uh, them by law or by custom. In matters of truth, the primary thing is whether there is a valid argument for it and whether we understand that argument. So, how are things? Is it? What is it? The fact is, however, that even in things of theory, most of the things we know come via authority, not via our own going through the experiments or the experience or the arguments to prove the truth. It may be possible, for example, for you to go to, say, Purdue or, or Georgia Tech to learn how to construct an automobile. But what most of us know about automobiles is by authority. Someone tells us where the gas tank is, how the thing runs, what to do if something is wrong. And so therefore, but we don't know, we don't know how the whole thing works, or we don't know the technicality of its parts and how they fit together. And yet, we know that somebody does know that, we know that it does work, and therefore there's an intelligibility to the whole thing, which somebody knows, and which we are willing to accept their authority uh, as a uh, substitute for our own knowledge of the thing. So if the automobile, for example, doesn't have a, an ignition but just a button on the, on a, on the side which is run by a, a, a little disc that you have, then you have to be told how to do that. So once you are told how to do it, you know how to do it, you turn the thing, and how did you learn it? Because someone explained it to you how this key or, or button worked. And so, therefore, you took it initially on authority. 
So if the car is broken down, uh, we have to find a mechanic who knows how the uh, dang thing runs, how it works. Uh, just because we know something on authority, it does not follow that we uh, what we know is less true. So if, um, if somebody tells us on virtue of authority that this is what this thing is and that this will work, even though we don't know it, but we follow it, that doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that we didn't learn it ourselves, but we learned it from testimony of someone else. If someone tells me that two and two are four, I know that truth by authority. So I'm going with myself, a little, little child, the first time they know what two and two are four, the mother says this, how does he know that? He says, because mother told me. So therefore, you trust the authority of the one telling uh, us who knows the argument. But if I know the argument, then I know the truth by evidence, or by argument. So you may, in the beginning, your mother may have told you that two and two are four, but at a certain point in your growth, you saw it yourself, and therefore you didn't any longer rely on authority. So authority, in that sense, is a substitute for truth, and a reasonable substitute very often. Simon says that there, that there are two common ways that truth and authority are related. One is the case of the witness, he mentioned that before, and the other of the teacher. As we have seen, all particular acts that we put into the world could have been otherwise. And it's say before you did them. They could have been otherwise. You could have done them or not done them, could have done them uh, some other way. No human action is ever exactly the same as another. No person is exactly the same as another. Not even if uh, cloned, it would be the same. Thus, we can arrive at particular events uh, by virtue of some logical argument. So particular events, because they were put in by, uh, by will, uh, they are not necessarily logically necessary that this happened rather than that happened. So no logical or philosophical argument can prove that uh, Shaul, for example, was standing by the uh, river this afternoon, for example. But someone may have seen him there and testified that he was there. And therefore, it is reasonable uh, to take that as a truth on the basis of authority. Let us suppose that someone uh, was standing at the uh, bank uh, of the Potomac, of the river, at, say, 3 o'clock on some afternoon, a particular date. And the, he was standing at a certain point of the river. At this very time, the bank, 10 blocks away, uh, was being robbed. And someone arrested, arrested the person down by the river as a suspect. And the only way that suspect was down by the river can prove that he was not up on the uh, 10 blocks away at the bank robbing him at the same time uh, was that 
two other people walking by the river at that time saw that someone else was there who they recognized. And their sole function then, in that case where this uh, innocent person was arrested, their sole function is to affirm that that person was not where he was in a position to rob the bank. This is what you mean by an alibi, which means his being elsewhere at the time. So the only way he could prove, uh, I mean, he could say that he was someplace, but the uh, police wouldn't believe him. But if two other witnesses saw him down there and no one saw him at the, at the bank, then they have to take that as uh, an alibi uh, that he was not really robbing the bank. What is the function of truth here? Simply to state the truth of the fact that of this fact that someone was seen someplace else. So the obligation of the witness who saw this person here is simply to tell the truth. And since this is the only way to know practical truths, as they cannot be deducted from some higher argument, uh, this is why Aristotle says the moral things are only true for the most part. There may well be an obligation, legal or general justice, in Aristotle in Book 5, to tell the truth to a court or to the press. But the function of truth is simply there on the part of the witnesses to say uh, that this is true. And it's the function of the others to accept this as a witness as the only alternative to finding out the truth. The teacher, on the other hand, is also an authority. He is different from the uh, witness. Truth is free. No one can own it. Doesn't mean it becomes otherwise than itself, but no one can own it. However, a school is a certain kind of institution. It recognizes that truth and knowledge come slowly. There are exercises and disciplines that facilitate the uh, learning of uh, the truth. True, a few people uh, can learn truth without uh, a school. So some people can learn many things without necessarily going to school or without having teachers. But it is mostly easier and more efficient to learn with a teacher. Thus, the teacher can require that students uh, to take an arbitrary example, uh, come to class, do certain paperwork, recite certain things. There are things that uh, can be known easier and more certainly if someone guides us to learning them. The discussion of Simone, of the teacher, is very good. See also the discussion in my own book, Another Sort of Learning, as a, an example of a, a book which teaches you 
follow in certain sense what you need or guide you in what you need. So the teacher has a substitute authority and so long as you're in the class and responsible for that and he's responsible to judge how well you are as a student, that authority he has enables you uh, more quickly and more freely to come to a knowledge of a thing. Uh, and when you come to the knowledge of a thing, then the teacher is no longer necessary. You understand it. So therefore, you don't need the teacher anymore. So he's no longer the authority uh, that is guiding you. The next two sections of uh, Simon are called the freedom of the intellect and truth and community. Very interesting chapters. They're brilliant, really, and profound uh, passages in these um, chapters, some of which we have reflected on already. Simon's essential point is that the human intellect, as such, is not the will. The will is the power of going out to a thing which is known. But what are we going to do about it? Our freedom of choice lies not in the intellect, but in the will. But our freedom of choice itself depends on the intellect. That is, it's if I, uh, ha as if I have 10, we saw this before, if I have 10 alternatives to choose from, I am freer than if I only have one. It is the intellect that gives information about the 10. It is the intellect plus the will searching as to which one to do and the, and the judgment that we have of prudence that decides we will do number two rather than the other, uh, the other uh, nine. And therefore we decide to live with this because uh, we can't choose all 10 at the same time. And if we try to do that, we would never get anything at all done. But as Aristotle uh, says, the intellect is not the cause of action. The intellect simply knows. Action is what follows from knowledge and it, is, and it is put into effect by the will knowing something. But the will doesn't know anything. It can't go out to anything. So that's why you have to know things. Uh, and what things do you know? You know the things that are out there. And that's the purpose of your intellect. Your intellect is to bring those things which are not you into you so that you can judge them and know what to do about them. So in conjunction with the intellect, we must choose to act on this or that alternative. If a man uh, thinks uh, that uh, three and six make 17, he is in principle not more free than the man who says that three and six are nine. The intellect is free to search for and find the truth, but it does not make the truth. So that's a very important thing to understand. If I have an erroneous idea, I am not as free as a man who has the correct idea. So if I think that 
um, uh, 6 and uh, 9 make 27, whereas it doesn't make 27, I am not free as a man who understands how many it actually does make. Rather, uh, when finding it, the intellect affirms it. Truth, as Plato says, is to affirm, it's a very important thing to remember, truth is to affirm of what is, of what is out there, what I encounter, that it is, not to deny it, it is really there, and of what is not, that it is not. The discussion of Simon, of the uh, uh, nature of the of liberalism, in is a fine analysis of the exact location of truth and necessity in our mind, and um, so in a certain sense that, that in the mind, the two and two equal four is a necessary conclusion. That's the nature of the thing. And if you think that the mind can conclude anything to that other than four, then there's something uh, wrong. It is not, you're not free to, to do that. So therefore, to understand the difference uh, between moral and intellectual knowledge uh, of the truth, it's important to understand that difference. And so uh, the so-called freedom uh, to make up our own first principles is, in effect, uh, a denial of the nature of the intellect. So the, the idea is somehow or other that you're not bound to the truth and you can make the truth to be whatever you want it to be. That in itself is a violation of the very nature of the intellect that you have and what its, what its function and purpose is. So Simon has the following insightful remark on page 112. He says, at philosophical conventions, deaf men make speeches for other deaf men and blind men uh, uh, play uh, pantomimes for other blind men. And this will never uh, uh, prove anything against the intrinsic communicability of philosophical truths. That is, if it is true and you uh, follow uh, the method or insight in knowing it, it is knowable even uh, if no other philosopher recognizes it. So if you don't want to recognize the possibility of knowing the thing, that you don't see it or you don't hear it, uh, you will never come to the argument for its truth. The section on truth and uh, uh, community brings up the uh, question of whether truth must be caused or whether it can simply be left to find its own level. That is say, people say, well, you don't need it, doesn't need any help, truth does, because uh, it'll, it'll find its own thing, find its own audience. Simon does not think that truth is easy uh, to come by. And it 
And in fact, uh, there are uh, as much hostility against it. And thus, a community has some interest in truth. Well, the idea that the community has no interest in truth is not is not valid. Simon suggests that usually we are in agreement uh, on certain practical truths, say that uh, uh, commercial uh, uh, diseases or communicable diseases ought to be uh, controlled. So nobody thinks that uh, you should go around and, and spread communicable diseases. But if someone thinks the disease is a good thing, contrary to the truth, it is not possible that this theoretical position be ignored as uh, uh, indifferent to the well-being of the community. So if someone thinks it's all right uh, and that it's against his freedom to... Uh, spread some kind of a disease, uh, clearly everyone would recognize that this is not the case and he must, be, uh, he must be prevented from doing what he thinks is good for everybody and uh, what he thinks he's free in proposing. So he's not free in proposing something which is uh, contrary to the good. Ideas have consequences, as we've heard, as a famous uh, philosopher has put it. So. If your idea is wrong, it will eventually show up in some way, in some uh, dire fashion. The principal part of the common good is contained within our soul. Simon says on page 127, very important thing. Why does he say this? The principal part of the common good is contained within our soul. That's that we commonly agree on the truths that we live by. And when we don't do this, we don't commonly agree, um, and that getting along becomes less and less easy and less and less possible. Chapter 4 of Simon's book deals with the common communication of excellence, the good in other words. Here the question is, as in chapter 3, whether authority is helpful in the pursuit of the good, as it was helpful uh, but not necessary, not essential in the pursuit of the truth. The first thing he does, Simon does, is explain, is to discuss uh, parental authority. Now, parental authority is not in existence for its own sake, so it's substitutional. It takes the place of something. It is different from the political authority uh, due to unity of action or the material willing of the common good as necessary arguments for the necessity of political authority. Parental authority is, is caused by a defect, 
the natural defect, of course, the child isn't old enough to understand. But in this case, though, it's natural defect of age and uh, of maturity. But if a child never, for some reason of sickness or so, never has one, it, it will need authority, substitutional authority, all his life. Uh, the purpose of parental authority is uh, ultimately to uh, uh, disappear. As the woman said, parental authority naturally disappears as the child gradually is able to make his own decision and take his own responsibility. In this sense, it differs from political authority, as, as the argument has shown. Those political philosophers, like Marx, for example, that believe in the uh, withering away of the state are essentially following theories based on the model of parental authority. So whenever a political authority says, well, down the ages, we're not going to have to have uh, any kind of ruling principle any longer, you know that the model of the uh, authority that they have in mind is a parental authority, which is natural, but which will disappear and should disappear. So when parental authority doesn't disappear, or when a child doesn't grow up, this is an unnatural situation. However, parental authority is natural. Every person should be ruled by reason at all times. Uh, if not by his own reason, then by uh, the reason of someone else. In the case of the child, uh, that of its parents, that reason of its parents is the ruling principle. A parent makes the question of a particular act, do not do this thing, do not walk out into the street. Uh, the child doesn't know that necessarily unless he takes it on authority from his parents who are doing what, who are, uh, who are doing what is reasonable for him. Parental authority is substitutional. That is, it substitutes for the child's reason until such time, uh, relatively late, uh, when it can actually rule itself. So we call uh, the end of the ethic and the transition to the politics, where some people leave the household without being able to rule themselves. And therefore, they need some kind of coercion on the part of the state because of the damage they do or their lack of virtue. Parental authority does not rule primarily for uh, its, that is the parent's, own good, but for the child's good. While there is a common good of a family, it is not a political uh, common good. So the, the parent authority, it looks to the particular good of the child, just as a doctor's authority looks to the particular needs of this patient, not all other patients, but of this patient, because he is the one under examination or the parent's child is the one that is their child, and therefore they're responsible to rule him. The book of Simon is essentially a debate with Rousseau, who uh, basically denied the need for authority. Rousseau uh, sees no need of uh, internal order 
or virtue caused by habit and by training. He, loc uh, he locates uh, moral errors in institutions outside of ourselves. Somebody else is the cause of it. Whenever we see institutions blamed uh, for what is wrong, whether it be states or families or so forth, nations or, or property, uh, when we see those things as the cause of evil, the cause of what's order, we are inevitably in the hands of Rousseau, uh, whether we know it or not. The classical tradition uh, sees disorder as within the soul of each of us, ultimately, and not in some, some other kind of a thing. So the logic of this means that if you are in a so-called perfect society, it doesn't follow that you will necessarily do what is good always because the institution guides you to it or forces you to it. You can always do something wrong. And that's the very nature of the free will and the uh, intellect uh, which provides it information. Simon next discusses the notion of direct democracy. This brings us back to the material willing of the common good. Simon invokes the principle of hierarchy and autonomy, page 139. He is concerned about the theories that allow all lesser units to be absorbed into the higher order uh, so that nothing is left uh, but the state. So the whole point about sub as the notion of autonomy or subsidiarity is to acknowledge that the lesser units are important and necessary and need to be conserved for the common good and not absorbed by the community as if they can do a better job. And then Simon says that a hierarchy, that is to say there, uh, some, some people do different things and there is ultimately a decision-making authority, uh, disappears or is uh, at a minimum in a state uh, that has gotten rid of uh, subordinate organizations and uh, lords it over uh, uh, a sheer um, uh, multitude of individuals. So all that's left then is the individual facing the state and not the individual as a member of different organizations. Such a state as one that has absorbed all of the lesser institutions outlined in Rousseau and in the Jacobin, and in the Jacobin, that's where you can read about the kind of a state that you end up with <coughs> is one which we would call an absolute or totalitarian state. Simon thinks that the combination of lesser units with their own authority looking to uh, the good of the lesser units is what counterbalances the authority uh, that thinks the common good is some sort of a thing uh, apart from and above the actual people who compose it. <clears throat> the discussion of Simon of the relation of ethics and politics on page 141 is very good. He points out uh, uh, like Aristotle, that all virtues have a social context 
and a state legal justice, they all can refer uh, to uh, others. And there are not just private affairs. So our virtues are not just private affairs. So whether I'm just or not in my actions uh, depends upon how I act towards others and how they expect me to act towards them. Simon says it is impossible to uh, postulate an irreducible conflict between the ethics of man and the ethics of the state without positing uh, contradictions within the absolute. So what does he mean by that? He says it's impossible to postulate an irreducible conflict. So there's a conflict between ethics and politics. And therefore, the conflict between ethics and politics, uh, he says, uh, indicates that whoever designed the universe must not uh, understand the question of contradiction. And so therefore, the notion that political uh, ethics is different from private ethics, individual ethics, is itself a contradiction and, and would allow evil to be good and good to be evil. And so this, uh, <clears throat> all of this discussion goes back to the notion of Aristotle, uh, that the rule of the self and the rule of the policy are both rules of reason within human beings, even so within the human beings over what they are to be guided. So that the, the rule of yourself over yourself and all things in yourself uh, which need to be ruled the right time, the right place, the right circumstances. That principle is the uh, putting the stamp of reason on all of our actions. And whether it be a, an individual or a parent or a political leader, they're all doing the same thing to, the, to that over which they have jurisdiction. And therefore, they are trying, to, in some sense, to act reasonably in all of their activities. So finally, the final section of Simon, or called the freedom of self, which we mentioned earlier, is a remarkable reflection. So pages 150 to 151 are simply profound. And also, Simon's appendix on civil disobedience is well worth reading. So I might say in conclusion, then, that the Simon book is a book which gradually takes us through, step by step, the philosophical uh, approach to the question of why authority is necessary and why it is helpful. And when you come to the end, the notion of the freedom from the self, this goes ex exactly contrary to much modern understanding. We do not want the self to interfere with our seeing the truth of things and therefore acting in a world that we see that is really there. Because if we allow ourselves to guide what we're going to see for our own interest, we will never see what properly is outside of ourselves and what needs to be done. And so with this, we will conclude our discussion of Simon. And our next discussion will be on the Old Testament and the New Testament brief discussion about the uh, impact of these two uh, famous sources on political philosophy. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.